0: I couldn't agree more that when we begin to lose our empathy, we also decline as a society. Now imagine for a second that you're the the woman in this train, how would you feel? If you were also one of those people in the train, what would you do? In the sermon, using our text, Joshua chapter 15, we will talk about respecting boundaries. We will also answer the question, When is it acceptable time to step out of boundaries? And more importantly, we will draw a picture of how we as followers of Jesus Christ can live in a world of boundaries and still act like good neighbors. So we're talking about boundaries and being a neighbor. Joshua chapter 15 is a continuation of a long series. It's titled God's Plan, His Kingdom, and His Boundaries. But today I'd like to talk to to you about boundaries. Uh, to those of you who are meticulous, a.k.a. OCD, chapter 15 uh, starts with the first uh, 12 verses. And in these 12 verses, you will find 18 counts of the word boundary, which tells me that boundary is really the in for this thing. Verses 20 up to 63, you'll find 12 counts of the word cities or villages with cities, which tells me again that both the words boundary and cities play a huge role in understanding this text. Now let's establish the facts here. The text deals with the inheritance of of Judah. Now who's Judah, by the way? Judah is one of the tribes in Israel. At this point, he is the most prominent uh, tribe member in all of Israel, the tribe of Judah. In fact, he is so prominent that he was given the most allotment of the inheritance. If you look at the map of Israel, he has the biggest inheritance. Now, why is that? That goes back all the way from Genesis chapter 49 when Jacob was about to die. He gave out his blessings to all his children, and he gave the most blessing to Judah. Judah was, was the fourth son. He's not the firstborn. The first two uh, forfeited their rights because they did something wrong. Levi became the priest of the tribe. So it was fallen to Judah to have this inheritance. Listen to Genesis 49 verses 8 and the following. It said, Judah, your brother shall praise you, your hand shall be on your neck of your enemies, your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched like a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. Now, based from this prophecy, the talk about scepter and and kingship is the prominent role of, of blessing here. The role of the firstborn was given to him. Now, we understand that in culture, in, especially in Jewish culture, the firstborn gets double portion. He gets a bigger piece of land. Why? Because leadership will fall on him. Let me give you another fact. At this point in time, although Joshua has conquered the whole land of Israel, it's very clear from the text that they have not conquered or occupied 100% of the land of Canaan. Why? Because the Jebusites are still in Jerusalem. We know already that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel now, but before, when they occupied in the time of Joshua, it was occupied by the Jebusites. And the Jebusites were part of the Canaanites. Now here's what it says in verse 63 it's like a running commentary, the last verse of chapter 15, it says, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out, so the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. I mean, to this day is when Joshua was writing this book. Now, observe, in contrast to Caleb, with with single individual and a small group of ragtag individuals in army, he managed to defeat the Anakites, the giants living in Hebron. Why is it that the Judahites could not defeat the Jebusites? Very interestingly, in the middle of the passage in chapter 15, there was a guy by the name of Othniel. Othniel was the brother of Caleb. And according to the small fragment of the story, it was Othniel... Who defeated another tribe in near Hebron, the Kiryat Sefer? Now, think about this: these two individuals with small group of army were able to defeat, defeat a big portion of land, but the Judahites could not defeat. Why is it? If we dig a little bit deeper, I'm going to show you three verses that may probably give us an understanding why was Judah were not able to defeat the enemy. Joshua 15, verse 63. Judges 1, 21, and Judges 3, verse 1. Let me show this to you. Together in one, one screen, it says, Joshua fifteen sixty three The Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. Now, that's very clear. They were not able to drive out. Judges 1, 21, it says, But the people of Benjamin, because Jerusalem was in the territory of Benjamin, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who live in Jerusalem. For them, it was intentional. It's not that they could not. It's that they did not. But in Judges chapter 3, it says, Now these are the nations the Lord left. Do you get the idea? The Jebusites, the Judahites did not. The Benjamites could not because these are the nations the Lord had left. Now this is very very important to understand this. See, the inability of the Judahites to drive out the enemy was God's intention in the first place. Why? It is God's way to make them, to keep them on their toes, to keep them vigilant, to give them a constant lesson of faith and dependence on God. Because the succeeding generations who did not see war, who did not appreciate what it means to fight the enemy were just benefits of of the peace. And so God would keep the Jebusites in Jerusalem for them, to, for, for, them, for, the, for them to be able to be vigilant about their surroundings. Now what's interesting here is if you want uh, appreciate is that the succeeding generations did not see war. And if they did not see war, they won't know how to appreciate God or appreciate what God did to their fathers. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about those people who did not grow up poor. Because I think that those people who grew up poor appreciate wealth better. For those people who grew up poor, they put more work, more effort, and more dedication. These people, the third generation we're talking about, are the people who were sons and daughters of the second generation who fought the wars in Canaan. They did not see the war, and therefore God, in his sovereign mind, allow the Jebusites to remain so that they will be given a lesson. Let me give an example. An article from Forbes magazine entitled Millennials and Entitlement in the Workplace, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly claims that those who were born from 1988 to 1994 are called millennials. Don't raise your hand if you're a millennial. Now, this of course is a generalization. But the understanding to this article is that they grew up in the time where equality of outcome instead of equality based on opportunity is the norm. So it says, and I quote, they were awarded participation trophies just for showing up to competitive events and had access to the internet with virtually unlimited connective potential in their childhood and early adult years, accordingly. They grew up to believe that the world already owed them something and complained when they don't immediately get it, unquote. This is the millennial generation. These are the generation that they feel they are entitled more than any other generation. Now it's not surprising that in 2022, the Black Lives Matter movement disappeared from public square. You don't hear any Black Lives Matter movement now compared to 2019 and 2020 and 2021. Their co-founder and millennial Patrice Coulours helped raise $90 million in donations, thanks to George Floyd. But she resigned this year when she was caught because she bought a swanky $6 million house in a white neighborhood in California using the BLM money for herself. And what's the reason? I can only think of one thing. Entitlement. At the height of the protests in 2020, the BLM went to the streets and demanded reparations, like payment reparations, while none of them were born slaves. How can you pay them when they're not slaves in the first place? I can only think of one thing, entitlement. So with this movement, these people went to the streets, inspired by Marxist ideologies, then didn't get an answer They went to the streets, and they broke loot shopping malls, restaurants, and groceries. And their only reason for taking in Nike shoes and Gucci bags was about reparations. Now, I don't think it's about reparations. I think it's a sick interpretation of entitlement. So what I'm saying is that the reason why the Judahites cannot defeat the Jebusites entirely was because God allowed it. Why did God allow it? Because God was being a a good father. A good father will not spoil his child. God was not spoiling his child in this this situation. He wanted to teach the next generation who grew up already in the land that if they wanted to stay and enjoy, they have to be on their toes. You see, God determined that the way for us to grow is not to take all the way the pains, all the way the troubles, all the way the hardships. In fact, it's the reverse. God knew that the best way For us to grow in faith is to put us in a situation like when the disciples were on the boat in the middle of the storm. To believe it, Jesus was sleeping on the boat, and his disciples were panicking. Why? Because they thought they were going to die. But why was Jesus sleeping? Because he knew it was a lesson of faith. Or probably during the time when he he asked his disciples to go in the middle of the desert with 5,000 hungry people, and he said at the very end, Feed these people, every one of them. How can the disciples feed them? So the disciples said, we have no money. Second, there's not a bakery inside. It's impossible. See, again, this is a lesson of faith. This is where they grow, so to speak. Because, you see, the lesson of faith comes when there's a need for it. Listen, people don't come to God or bother to go to church when they're busy with making money, enjoying pleasure. In fact, it's the reverse. People come to God when they're in trouble, when they're sick, when they're depressed, when they're hungry, when they have broken relationships, when they have lost their jobs or lost a loved one. That's when they feel they need God. See, it's the same garden where Adam and Eve failed. So in the same way, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and wrestle with the last temptation. The garden was his most vulnerable condition. He did not come from a fast, like when after he he was baptized, he went straight to the wilderness, and he fasted. Then after fasting, he had strength to battle the enemy. At this point in time, when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he came from a meal, so it was harder for him. And yet this was his final battle. This was his final temptation. I think at this point, Jesus was praying the same prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think Jesus is the only one who could look the evil in the face and win. See, the reason why Jesus allowed himself to be captured that night was because he was the only one who could look evil in the face and win. But again, he put his disciples in the thick of it, (laughs) in the very middle of this temptation, and the disciples, after he being arrested, ran away. Everyone ran away. They scattered in fear. In fact, Peter, the leaders among the disciples, denied him multiple times. See, but the point is here. The point is that these were part of the training, the discipleship that Jesus was talking about. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. It's part of the discipleship, to be able that your faith be tested again and again. This will prepare the disciples all the trials that they went through, all the tests that they went through, have prepared them for the next 50 years when one each one of them, one by one, will be arrested and will be tortured and will be murdered in cold blood, all for the sake of following Jesus. You see, our vulnerability is what keeps us on our toes. So if you're thinking, why am I always sick? Why am I always having trouble? Why am I always like this? Why am I always lonely and depressed? Look, the Bible says that these are tests. And these tests are meant to strengthen our faith, not pull us down. This is why we also pray, give us this day our daily bread. And you believe it? In the wilderness, the proper context for this prayer, give us this day our daily bread. They will have to respect and trust God every day. They will have to wake up in the morning and gather the manna, the bread, because it comes every day. That means at night they don't have any more food, and tomorrow their kids will be hungry. The only thing they can do is to trust God. And so the prayer is very apt. Give us this day our daily bread. It's very hard to to pray this prayer when you open your fridge and there's a lot of food in it. But when Jesus was, was telling his disciples about this prayer, they were On the itinerary, they were moving every day. That means they don't have food to eat every day. So that's why they pray, give us this day our daily bread. And because temptation can be any moment, he taught them, lead us not into temptation. And you know what? We will fail like the disciples. We are all bound to fail. So our prayer is forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. This is a beautiful picture of what this prayer really means in our daily walk with Jesus. Let's talk about boundaries. Chapter 15, verse 8. It says, Then the boundary goes up to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the southern shoulder of the Jebusite, that is Jerusalem. This is twice the word Jebusite as in the word mentioned. Now, this is a, a very long uh, chapter chapter 15 up to verse 63. And there are many uh, mentions of the word boundary. One of the boundaries that's very important here is the valley of the son of Hinnom or the ba- valley of Ben-Hinnom. Son in Hebrew is Ben. So Ben-Yamin is the son of Yamin, Ben-Yamin. So the valley is the marker between the boundaries of Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin to the north, Judah to the south. Now what's interesting here is that the boundary serves a very significant function in the in the partition of the inheritance. What is the boundary for? The boundary for, as you guess, is for this, these tribes to respect each other. Because if they, they did not, then it's impossible for them to be able to live as God's holy people, a kingdom of priests. They have to respect their boundaries. In fact, God places a curse on anyone who would cheat and move landmarks. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 17. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And so I know you have properties. Please do not move your landmarks. Fast forward after Joshua. After Joshua, there were a series of civil wars. Saul became the first king and then he died. And then David became king But before he was accepted, he was rejected by, very particularly, the tribe of Benjamin. Why? Because Saul was a Benjamite. And so for the first seven years of his reign, his capital was Hebron in Judah. He cannot go to Jerusalem. It's in Hebron. And only after seven years that he was able to move his capital to Jerusalem. But in the middle of his reign, in the middle of that 23 years, David made a very grave mistake and God punished him severely. God punished him severely that pestilence broke out all over Israel and about 70,000 people died during the pestilence. Think about the last plague in Egypt. The angel of death was going around Israel and killing people. That's because of one mistake of a king. 70,000 people. And when this angel of death was about to enter Jerusalem and destroy Jerusalem, God said, 1 Chronicles 21, and he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now that tells you that still the Jebusites occupied the land. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven, earth, and heaven. Now, this is a a very important phrase. The angel was standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand, a drawn sword attached, stretched out over Jerusalem. Now, what does this mean? Now, because of this passage, if you study this, this is the reason why the the temple was built in Jerusalem. Because after this one, David commanded that the people will, will prepare for the building of the temple. This becomes the new marker when David saw the angel standing between the earth and heaven. The temple would be a place of convergence. A temple will be built on the same place where he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth. The temple will become the boundary of heaven and earth. The temple will become, it's like the heaven on earth. It's like God's office on earth. That's a temple. This is the real gateway to heaven, by the way. So if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, this is the same reason why the people built the Tower of Babel, because they want to bring heaven on earth. They want to give God his opening, his, his entrance. And so the temple was God's boundary on heaven and earth. Now, the temple has two chambers, the inner chamber and the outer chamber. In between the outer chamber and the inner chamber is a thick Veil embroidered with seraphim. Now, I'd like you to think at this point the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is guarded by the seraphim. The veil is effectively the boundary of God's domain. That means the outer chamber, that's where the people can come and worship God. The inner chamber veiled by this huge thick veil is God's domain. Nobody can enter that place. If you try to enter that place, you will die. And the only person who can approach God in the inner chamber is the high priest who can only go inside once a year. Why? Because that place is holy. In fact, it's called the Holy of Holies because God resides in that place. There's another boundary outside Jerusalem. It's located in the Valley of Hinnom. Again, Benjamin to the north, Judah to the south. That's the boundary, is the Valley of Hinnom. After David, his son replaced him, King Solomon. King Solomon was held to be the richest, the most talented, the wisest king ever in Israel. But he also made a mistake. In the latter portion of his life, he was charmed by his many wives, 300 wives and 700 concubines. Too much for one man. And so because he was charmed, he built places for worship for idols. And one of the idols is Molech. Molech is worshipped by sacrificing children in the fire. And where did he build this? In the Valley of Hinnom. So the Valley of Hinnom became the center for worship for Molech. Now, you, you get this picture. See, Jerusalem was up here in the north, just at the edge of Jerusalem city is the Valley of Hinnom. This is like a guy who's cheating on his wife and the girl he's cheating with is just next door. This is like, imagine this for a second, an Israelite would bring a sheep to the temple, and right after there, he would walk about 30 minutes down, and would go to the Valley of Hinnom and sacrifice his children. It's not a good idea. But that's what Israel was doing here at this point. Now, when the Romans came at the time of Jesus, they wanted peace. They called it the Pax Romana. And to, st- and to maintain the peace and to stop rebellion, they resorted to capital punishment, which is called crucifixion. That's why Jesus was crucified, for rebellion. Sometimes during the crucifixion, people die within a day. But other times, and most of the times, people don't die. They, they die after two, th- th- two days or three days. That's why when the Romans get tired waiting, they break the knees of those they crucified. And so to make sure that the land is not polluted, they bring the corpses, the bodies, bring them to the Valley of Hinnom and burn them there. It's like a cremation site, the Valley of Hinnom. So from a temple worship of Molech became a cremation site where they burned bodies with fire. And and the account says that a lot of people died, if not thousands, millions, to make sure that all the subjects bowed down to the emperor. The Romans, by the way, did not call this Valley of Hinnom because Hinnom is Hebrew. They call it in Greek, it's Gehenna. But the English translators call this hell. So when you think and you read the Bible hell, you think of Gehenna. You think of the Valley of Hinnom. So when Jesus preached about anger, In the Sermon of the Mount, it's very interesting because he mentioned this, chapter 5 of Matthew 21. He said, you have heard that it was said to those of of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, now watch this, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus here is referring to the valley of Hinnom, where bodies are burned in the fire. See, if the temple is the boundary between heaven and earth, the valley of Hinnom is the boundary between hell and earth. Jesus was referring to this place. He was trying to point to this place, telling the people, that this is a place where people go if they sin against God. Now what's fascinating here is that when he said this, he told us another story. And in Luke chapter 16, he was telling this story about hell, prefaced by the Pharisees. He was being criticized by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees who were supposedly the people who exude righteousness, humility, and godliness, Jesus said, are hypocrites. They are lovers of money. And because of that understanding, Jesus told a story. Listen to Luke chapter 16. He said, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Purple and fine linen, that's good to you. And, this, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's stable. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Hades Hades is the Roman myth equivalent of Gehenna. And he called out, Father Abraham. He said, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, you remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who would pass by here to you may not be able, and none of them may cross there to us. Now this is very interesting. What Jesus actually is telling in the story is that the Pharisees were acting like the rich man. This is actually a parable. Jesus saying, see, in this story, you Pharisees, who you think you are worthy, righteous, humble, you fast every day, you give alms to the poor, and yet you are the rich man. What Jesus is telling in the story is a reinterpretation of the book of Job, or the story of Job. Job was said to be a righteous person, who for what reason he became sick and he was, had this sores all over his body. In fact, you would find that in, in Job chapter 2. It says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. What Jesus is saying is that, look at this Lazarus. Lazarus is the story of Job. He's righteous, but you Pharisees, you are the rich man. And you know what will happen at the end of the story? Look at that. See, Jesus was giving them an image, painting a picture of what will happen to the rich and the righteous. Lazarus, interestingly, means the one whom God helps. And at the very end, God helps Lazarus. If you look closer, the rich man, of course, there's nothing wrong to be rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich. The problem with this rich man is that he did not use his riches to help Lazarus. He neglected the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So this rich man was in Gehenna or in Hades because of that. See, what Jesus is saying is that the Pharisees were lovers of money. There's another scripture that says you cannot serve both God and money at the same time. You will choose one. So so what I'm saying is that these people, the Pharisees, who love money more than ever, has neglected to be a neighbor to this guy. And so this man, this rich man, he said to Abraham, he said, please ask Lazarus to send to dip his finger in water to cool my tongue. Why would he say that? Because it's hot in there. How hot? Now, we don't have to guess. In verse 24, it says, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. What flame are we talking about? We're talking about the Valley of Hinnom. We're talking about Gehenna. We're talking about Hades, we're talking about hell. Jesus was painting a picture of the valley of the Ben-Hinnom where bodies are burned. That's the eternal punishment. But instead of being burned and consumed, people there are tormented in the afterlife for eternity. And the worst part is the rich man cannot go from one place to another because there's a, a great cast that divides. He cannot reverse it. He cannot undo what he has already done. See, in the same way, if one crosses the veil of the inner chamber, he dies. Because that's a boundary. If one crosses the valley of Beninam, he dies. Because again, that's a boundary. Because boundaries are placed so that we don't get ourselves in trouble. But while we are alive, Boundaries are meant to be crossed when your neighbor is in trouble. Would you say amen to that? Let's try that again. Boundaries are meant to be crossed when your neighbor is in trouble. Amen. In fact, the second greatest commandment talks about that. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. Second to loving God. That means loving your neighbor as if the boundary between the two of you is gone. That's how you love your neighbor. There's no more me or you. Loving your neighbor means us and we. Because if not, boundaries can become an excuse for our selfishness. And we can become like that rich man who treated Lazarus unrighteously. And understand, we are in the culture of privacy and individualism. But I'm telling you that this same culture will is the one that stops us from reaching out. See, we could live in a community for a decade and not know who our neighbor is. And that's a tragedy. If I make a make a comment, some people like the idea of a big church because in a big church, they can simply go in and out unnoticed. Some people would like to attend churches like, because they like the idea of anonymity. Because if you're anonymous, there's no accountability. And if there's no accountability, it's like being on Facebook where you can see everybody else's Facebook and profiles where you are invisible. That's what I like about small churches. We know each other by name. We know what's happening to our lives. We know when somebody's sick. We know when somebody's needy. We can respond immediately. At the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples that he will come back again, but this time to judge the world. And he said at the very end, Matthew chapter 25, that in judgment, Jesus will come back and he will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep know my voice because they follow me. The believers are the sheep. But who are the goats? The goats are the unbelievers, those who would not follow Jesus. He will put the sheep on his right and he will put the goats on his left. And this is what Jesus said. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, we know who's cursed. It's Cain and the Canaanites. They're the ones who are destined for that. In fact, the hell was prepared for the, the devil and his angels, not for us. It's not for us. And yet, goats will go there because they did not acknowledge Jesus and they did not do something that's very important. So, Jesus said, These people will go to the eternal fire prepared for the devil's angels because he was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not cloth me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will answer, and they are bewildered. Why? How could that be? And they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And this is what Jesus said. And then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And this will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So here's the question for us. What is a good neighbor? Or better yet, am I a good neighbor? Are you a good neighbor? What does it mean to be a neighbor in this world or in this community? What does it mean to reach out? What does it mean to care? I think, brothers and sisters, we are in a better position because we understand this. We are in a better position to reach out and be a good neighbor. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. In fact, it's because of your goodness that we are also good. And because of your goodness, we are good so that we can extend this goodness to others and be a good neighbor. Father, allow us Even in this community, even in this Western culture where where individualism trumps over society and community. And Father, I pray that you will allow us as believers, as followers of Jesus, to reach out. I pray that you will make our hearts bigger so that we can bring more people.